This morning we'll be continuing through our series on the book of Jonah together. And we've reached the final chapter of this book, Jonah chapter 4. So we'll be looking at Jonah chapter 4 together. And you can find that on page 1069 of your pew Bible. Page 1069 of your pew Bible. Up to this point, Jonah was told to prophesy to Nineveh. He fled. He was brought back. He um, went and uh, was made to walk through the city and uh, proclaim to them that they would be overthrown. So he, he came back. He was reestablished in his position as prophet. And then we find the shocking turn of events in 3 verse 10 that God saw the works of the people of Nineveh, that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. And now we come to our chapter. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, it's better. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as the morning dawned and the next day, the next day God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? So far the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you ever looked back on life and recognized God's hand on it? At one particular episode in your life that you really saw the mercy of God, God's redemption for you, His patience, His kindness, His long-suffering, 
looking back on that, seeing what you did yourself and seeing how throughout that episode of your life, even up to the end, you were being stubborn and hard-hearted. And now looking back on it, seeing God's kindness in reaching out to you again and speaking to you again through His Word, through those around. Have you ever looked back on that and recognized His mercy? The book of Jonah is one that's full of redemption. From start to finish, we've seen man's rebellion and God's grace. We've seen Jonah fleeing from the Lord. We've seen his suffering in the belly of the fish, his crying out to the Lord, and his return to his former position as once again being a prophet of the Lord. We've seen a city that was far from God, that had no reason to enjoy his favor and concern, cry out to God and be saved from the brink of destruction. And yet we know that if we're left to ourselves, even despite all the hands, all, all, all the work that God does, if we were to be left to ourselves, we'd jump right back from the frying pan into the fire, don't we? Recognizing that that's our inclination, and it's only the mercy of God that holds us back. Today, we can see that once again in our chapter, and we see a man here. Jonah, a man who has made some very bad choices. And we see him be rescued from those bad choices. We see him respond with bitterness to our God. And we see the grace of God poured out on him. Through Jonah, our eyes are, are directed to our Redeemer, who rescues us even from ourselves. And so we'll look at this final chapter in Jonah through the following theme and points. Rejection of bitterness in looking to your Redeemer. And we'll see, first of all, man's displeasure, and secondly, God's redemption. Now, up to this point, we've already seen a remarkable shift in Jonah due to the grace of God. This man who had run away from God, has now been returned to God's service, returned to his position of honor as a prophet of the Lord. And he promptly went to work. There was no hesitation this time. He preached from one end of Nineveh to the other, foretelling destruction. But then something shocking happened. The people listened. That wasn't supposed to happen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was on this earth, he said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. But Jonah hadn't reached that point in his ministry to these people in Nineveh. He didn't come to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to proclaim destruction on them. Jonah just came to watch them burn. These people had hurt his people. He was ready to see them pay. But they responded to his preaching. That wasn't supposed to happen. They fasted and they put on sackcloth. They withheld food from their animals and clothed them in sackcloth too. Last Sunday it was pointed out to me that these animals, when they're withheld water, they would start complaining. 
Cattle and other beasts make a lot of noise when they're not being fed or watered. So think about the racket that would have gone up to heaven from this city. Animals making noise. People crying out to God. All of this rising up to heaven. Still, Jonah had promised and prophesied destruction. And he figured, despite all this, he could at least await that. So he settles in. Settles in to wait and see what's going to happen. But nothing happened. Forty days passed as he prophesied and nothing. There's no fire and brimstone. There's no enemies that come and tear down the walls to destroy the city. The people return to their daily routines. The markets are bustling with life again and people are living. The normalcy of this displeases Jonah. Here are a people who have contributed to the death and destruction of thousands upon thousands, families torn apart, nations enslaved. What happened to the Lord's wrath? What happened to his righteous judgment? We read here that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Literally translated, we read, it became evil to Jonah, as a great evil. You can't express it any more strongly in the Hebrew. He saw it as a great evil that they survived. What was God doing? Now, at this point, I want you to stop and think for a moment. Is there anyone in your life, it might be hard to sympathize with Jonah in the sense of a big city, But is there anyone in your life that you yourself feel is less worthy of God's mercy than you are? Maybe in your life you've had someone sin against you. They wronged you or someone you cared about terribly. They've repented, apologized, asked for forgiveness. And now it seems like nothing's happening with them. Sure, they may have faced some punishment, but not near enough for your taste. They repented, and now they're supposed to be right with God? How's that fair? Is nothing supposed to happen with them? Don't they deserve the wrath of God? Jonah says, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. I told you so, he says. Didn't I tell you that they would repent? You know, he didn't write about it that they did repent, but that could very well have been part of the reason that he fled. He's thinking, it would have been better if you didn't even give them a chance. Just give them their just desserts, the punishment they deserve. But no, you had to give them a chance to repent. Now that they have, you're stuck with the people who are a threat to God's, the, the people of God's existence. You forgave them, and you had to drag me in to be a part of it. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord answers him with extreme patience. 
He doesn't condemn Jonah. He just asks him the simple question. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? A while back, I was visiting my sister and her son. And, or I was visiting my sister and her, her son was having a bit of a meltdown. Something didn't go his way and he screamed. And she picked him up and took him into her arms and said, this is not an appropriate attitude right now. You're not making mommy happy. He stops, sniffles, and says, okay. And that's it. He walked away. It was amazing. But those, those children sometimes seem borderline angelic. But we, we know that's not how people usually react, is it? If they're told it's not right to be angry, they'll either get loud and respond, or they'll sulk. And we know that it doesn't just go that way with kids. We know it goes that way with adults, too. Jonah takes the second response. The Lord says, is it right to be angry? And he doesn't respond. He just leaves the city, sits on the east side and makes a shelter and waits. He waits to see what will become of this city. The sun's beating down, it's hot, and he's in a bad mood. Over the course of the day, a small plant starts to grow near him. Now, pay attention here. This isn't just any plant. You'll notice that there's a phrase used here. The Lord prepared a plant. We don't know what kind of plant it is. There are some people who have hazarded a guess. They say it's one kind of plant or another. But uh, no one knows for sure. But that's not important. What's important is how that plant came to be. Look at that phrase again. Does it sound familiar? It should. For those of you who have been following over the course of Jonah, think back to chapter 1. If you're feeling a little bit foggy. You'll find the exact same phrase as we find in Jonah 1 verse 17. It says, The Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. As it was then, here we find it again. It's divine intervention. It's the planning of an object lesson. But Jonah doesn't know it yet. He enjoys the shade of the plant. It brings him relief from the heat of the day and it makes him happy. Those days in the Middle East can be hot. When the day is over, he settles down and he falls asleep. The next morning, he sets himself up again. For better or for worse, he's planning to sit here until something happens to that city. The Lord, however, had another plan in mind. Today, as the sun rises, we see God divinely intervening in the natural order two more times. First, he prepares a worm that eats the root of the plant, and the plant withers. Second, God prepares a hot east wind. This kind of a wind isn't just any wind. One commentator suggests that this is perhaps similar to the wind known around the Mediterranean as a Sirocco. He says it is a desert wind that provides constant hot air, so full of positive ions that it affects the levels of serotonin and other brain neurotransmitters 
causing exhaustion, depression, feelings of unreality, and occasionally bizarre behavior. In some Muslim countries, the punishment for a crime committed while the sarako is blowing may be reduced at judicial discretion. So strongly does the prolonged hot wind affect thinking and actions. Added to this, there's a cloudless sky and the sun beats down on Jonah. Jonah feels overcome. It gets so bad for him that he's lying there and he says again, it's better for me to die than to live. He's reached his breaking point and there's nothing left for him here. And it's finally when he reaches this point that the Lord speaks into his life once again. The Lord says, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? Funny how that happens, isn't it? The Lord speaks into our lives often when we're at our lowest. Because it's often at these times that we're most ready to hear. We may not want to hear, but we're most ready to hear. And it's one of these moments that God prepares us for when the words that are brought to us will strike us with particular force. The question is how we'll respond to that person speaking into our lives. Jonah, in hearing God asking this question, he knows exactly what God is asking of him because God has used the exact same phrase except now he's added just the word, this plant. You can tell he knows the direction that this lesson is going in from his heated response. He says, it's right for me to be angry, angry enough to die. Knowing exactly why God, himself, why God is asking him this question, he's doing what so many of us will do when someone's trying to teach us something. He's stubborn, and he speaks rashly. Yet God shows patience. You see, God is trying to teach him something and teach us something by that plant and the worm. And he brings that out in the next verses. You've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right and their left, and much livestock? Jonah, he says, are not so many of my creatures worth pity? This plant is mine. I raised it and let it grow, and then it died. And yet, you had pity for this plant. Certainly it was for selfish reasons. It gained you something you did nothing to earn by. But think, these people were brought into existence by me. They and their creatures owe their daily breath to me. Each heartbeat, each moment, I'm intimately involved in keeping them going. They're calling on me for mercy. If such a plant deserves my mercy, should I not have mercy on this great people, 120,000 who are steeped in ignorance, yet cry out for my aid? Should I not pity them? Brothers and sisters, this should make us take stock of ourselves for a moment because many of us do have such people in our lives. People who unconsciously or not 
have been assigned a place of being less deserving of God's mercy than ourselves. Maybe it's because you're angry with them. Maybe they've done something to you. You might not wish hell on them, but you resent the fact that God allows them to carry on their day-to-day lives seemingly untroubled. But what does God teach us about this? We read in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's not our call to be bitter about someone else's treatment. Certainly we need to recognize that the consequences of their actions lie at their feet. They'll face those consequences, whatever they are, be it embarrassment, needing to apologize and ask for forgiveness or pay fines or maybe even face jail time. At the end of the day, they may even face the fires of hell. But who are we to judge the way that God allows them to live here? Who are we to say, this person is such a threat and is so distasteful that they don't deserve to carry on with life? In fact, I think they don't even deserve salvation. Do we truly leave it up to the hands of God to carry out His will on that person? Do we truly recognize God's word saying, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the flip side, do you seek their repentance? Do you pray that those who persecute you might turn? And I'm not talking about people who might keep you from worshiping. We don't have much of that in our country in our day. But I'm talking about those who make life miserable for you. Do you seek their repentance? Do you pray for them? Because this is what we'll get. When Jesus says he'll come to seek and to save that which was lost in Luke 19 verse 10, that includes many who are so lost that no one else can get to them. That includes unsavory characters. That even includes those whom you dislike and perhaps even despise. If anything, they're in greater need of seeking and saving than most other people. It might be tempting to say at such a point, where's God's wrath? Where's His justice? But then we need to remember that this wrath and this justice did come. That this wrath and justice for the person who asked for forgiveness did come. And it rested on His Son. It rested on God's Son. Do you begrudge that? If you don't look for their good in this way, hear this question from the Lord. Is it right for you to be angry? God cares about His creation. He's deeply concerned for His creatures and grieves and angers Him when they go astray. Yet He'll allow it sometimes to let His glory shine through. He'll allow some to be vessels of wrath in order to highlight His justice. Recognizing that, how much more joy should it cause us when there are those whom He has chosen who from our minds are so far away 
that he has chosen those to be vessels of mercy. When we recognize that God can redeem even those whom we see as lost causes, what a reason for joy that should be. Above all, it should be a reason for joy because it brings glory to God. It shows the world that no one is beyond his grace. It shows him that his gospel is for all. Put aside your displeasure and rejoice. But it should also be a reason for personal joy because it means that God can save you and me too. If I put my trust in him, or if you put your trust in him, we know that we'll never be put to shame which is all the more reason for us to put aside our displeasure and rejoice. This leads us into our final point. It might seem a little funny at this point to consider God's redemption. You may think, we've dealt with everything, right? We just finished dealing with that last sentence of the book. There's nothing left to deal with. God saves the city. Jonah's bitter about it. God cares. It ends, with, it ends poorly with Jonah, and that's it. That's all there is to it. End of story. But there you'd be wrong. Because it's not the end of the story. And in order to properly understand that, I want you to look at what's missing. Normally, what's missing is not something that you preach about. It's dangerous to step outside those lines. But in this case, it's of utmost importance. In this case, it makes or breaks the narrative of Jonah. So why do I say that? Let me explain. The silence that we find at the end of Jonah screams for an answer. We hear that very gentle rebuke from God. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between the right hand and the left, and much livestock. And then we hear nothing. That's the end. But it's ending on that note that speaks so loudly for us today. Because this one quiet moment in the book drives home the point that we've been slowly coming to realize for the entire narrative of this part of Jonah's life. It's not about Jonah. It was never about Jonah. It's all about God. Consider what we find here. It's a window into the life of Jonah, one of the prophets of the Lord, and it's not a particularly flattering one. It ends on his bitterness. And yet we still find it in Scripture. How do we find it there? How did it come to be there? The answer is that it was written down by Jonah himself. This was no dreamer who simply had a vision of something happening to some prophet. No, it was Jonah himself who wrote it down and brought it to the people of God. This was a man who wrote about his flight. He wrote in his running from the Lord. He wrote in his bitterness. He shouted aloud to the world, his wickedness, his sin, and his rebellion. This was a man who, by all rights, ought to have had his legacy in Israel 
as his prophecy that we found in 2 Kings 14, verse 25, at the very beginning of this series. That Israel would enter into another brief golden age and be restored some of the land that was taken from them. That should have been his legacy. He prophesied a golden age. And yet, that wasn't. He chose to have this as his memorial. He chose to have this as the epitaph on his gravestone by the Spirit of God. He chose by the Spirit of God to have this as his legacy through the ages. And what does this say? Here lies Jonah, a bitter man. He fled from God. He despised the mercy of the Lord. And yet, God cared. God loved him. God pursued him. And God found him. The very fact that this ended up in Scripture by his hand was a sign of this. It was a sign that God chose to continue to work through him. That he carried him along by the Holy Spirit. That this part of Scripture too is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting. It was brought to us by Jonah. By the Holy Spirit through the prophet of Jonah. So this leaves us thinking, what is your choice? What's your legacy? Will you cling to your own personal holiness? Will it be a reminder, your legacy be a reminder to people of your own righteousness, your own goodness? Or will your legacy be one that's written by the Holy Spirit? Will your legacy be one of redemption? One of grace, one of God's mercy, one of his salvation. This afternoon we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And as with every time we celebrate, we're reminded once again of our need, of our impossibility to come before the Lord of our own strength. It's one of the times in life in which we get to be truly genuine, recognizing ourselves for who we are. Every time we eat and drink of the wine, we're saying to the world, I am a sinner. I deserve nothing. Now let me point you to a God who gives everything. If you forget everything else about me, remember this, that I have a God who cares. I have a God who saves. I have a God who redeems. So let's examine ourselves this afternoon. Let's prepare for this Lord's Supper once again. And together, let's remember our Savior Jesus Christ, who came into this world for redemption. Let's remember that we have a Spirit who works powerfully in our hearts, directing us and guiding us, that when we go astray, He brings us home again. Let's remember, and each of us together confess, I have a God who redeems. Amen.